Hello and welcome to I Really Wish You Hadn't. This is a podcast about people and businesses that have made horrible mistakes, have fallen apart at the seams, or have just been generally awful since their inception. They're the kind of people and businesses that make you think, man, I really wish you hadn't. Welcome back to I Really Wish You Hadn't. I'm Michael Bentley, and I'm here with Cayman McMahon. Hello, comrades. And as always, <laughs> our producer, Colin Moore. Hey! As you could probably tell from the title, this week we're starting a series on Cuba. And it's going to be a girthy series. Yeah, this is without a doubt the biggest topic we've ever covered. Beyond a doubt. Like, going into it, we were talking about it, and I was like, yeah, we can probably clear it up in two episodes. Like, you've got the Cuban <laughs> Revolution, the Bay of Pigs, Cuban Missile Crisis, then you just round it out with some funny stories about Castro assassination attempts, and, like, that's it. Well, way to, um, like, spoil the entire plan, but yeah. Uh, this is... I'll be happy if we can get this one off in four. Yeah. It might take five. <laughs> well, that's the thing, is, like... This this one was this is half of what this episode was supposed to be. Oh yeah, we had to cut this one in half from what we had planned after we realized that this was going to be a bigger series. And this is just the intro episode. Yeah, it's this is a big, <laughs> yeah. big topic. So yeah, with that being said, there's a lot of information to cover. So Cayman, do you just want to hop in? Yeah, I think that's the best thing we can do at this point. All right. Well, no one's going to acknowledge my. Uh, not only am I prepared for this podcast today, I've made my notes. I have my red wine sitting to the side, red for, you know, the color of revolution. And uh, the color of communism. And the color of communism. Um, but I'm also wearing my uh, communist hat. Yes. It's... So I am, I am, I am, I am wardrobed up, wardrobed up for this podcast. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It's very impressive. Like, oh, yeah. you look at that and you say, man, that guy hates the government. <laughs> yeah. that guy needs to be on an fbi watch list some communists love their government or at least really pretend to there you go really it's because really you have to <laughs> all right so anyway i'm gonna go ahead and preface that i'm gonna skip a lot of important history but this story had to start somewhere like i said we we argued over where the story was gonna start and this is where we're going to start it at. But I would say that you should do your own research because there's a lot of stuff that I'm skipping over that's hugely important to the story of Cuba. Oh, yeah. And it's it's super interesting stuff that I wish we could have covered. But again, if you didn't want a literally an entire podcast of just Cuban history, <laughs> we had to cut it at a certain point. Right. So with that, this story starts as many great stories do. With the United States getting involved in the affairs of other countries. Which, you know, that's actually probably the best the story starts you've ever done. Because one, it's super relevant off the bat. I already know what you mean. Two, a lot of stories do start that way. Yeah, super accurate. Absolutely. <laughs> so best one so far, Michael. Good job. All right. Join with me. The year is 1898. Cuba exists as a colony of Spain but has already fought three separate civil wars over the past 30 years. And this is for a lot of different reasons. One of them is the practice of slavery. Uh, Cuba was a huge slave colony, 
and many people obviously were very against the idea, which caused a lot of turmoil within the country. I mean, it's it's the same story that you would hear for America. Yeah, every country that was participating in slavery, which damn near all of them around this, uh, are, you know, some did it earlier, some did it later. But yeah, same story right. over and over again. And, you know, while we're on the topic of things that sound similar, um, there was also the fact that Spain was controlling Cuba without Cuba having any say in the way that they were being governed. Like, they didn't have any representation within the Spanish government. So it's kind of like the American Revolution and the American Civil War rolled into one big war. So it's it's all these different topics floating around, and, and the Cubans are upset, and so that's what's led to all these different wars that have happened. So with a violent and destructive war taking place in Cuba, America really felt like it needed to get involved because Havana, which is the capital of Cuba, was a huge trading hub in the region. And America had been investing a lot economically in, you know, middle middle America and South America and, and most importantly, the Panama Canal. They had just gotten done building the Panama Canal. And Cuba was becoming this huge economic hub for their production of sugarcane and coal. And both of those things are pretty much the oil of their day. So, you know, America's obviously got to get involved in that. So the United States Navy decides to send the USS Maine to protect American assets in Cuba. Now, wait a second. Didn't the Panama Canal happen after the Spanish Civil War? Or after the, or I mean, after the Spanish-American War? I don't believe so. All right. Teddy Roosevelt was president for the completion of the Panama Canal. Maybe for the completion. Maybe they started it earlier. Well, other countries started it. Regardless, the Panama was Panama was getting started. I'm not sure if the U.S. specifically owned it at this time. Okay, yeah, you're right. The, the, okay. There was a takeover in 1904. Yeah, so I just Googled, when was the Panama Canal built? And it was like 1881. So, okay, maybe we need to do more research on the Panama Canal. There's yeah. a lot of stuff to cover. I'm sorry, I was wrong. Cayman's right. Um, so the Panama Canal had been built. We had not taken control of it yet. Right. That's interesting. Okay, maybe we do need to do a separate episode on that because that's... Um, Regardless, there's still a lot of investments. And I think that you start talking about this. Um, sugar. So... Yeah. 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 So, I mean, there's still a lot of money being traded around. You got all that chocolate coming out of, you know, South American countries. You've got sugar coming out of Cuba. You've got um, cocaine. Uh, so we, we right. I mean, you know, all the important exports, <laughs> right? All, all the ones we still love to this day. <laughs> Absolutely, cocaine and chocolate. Oh, and um, coffee, and coffee. Yes, all of my addictions. So on the night of February fifteenth, eighteen ninety eight, a massive explosion rocked the USS Maine, which caused the battleship to sink and killed over half of the crew. The U.S. Naval Court later ruled that this explosion was due to a mine but didn't directly pin Spain as the reason that it sank. Now, I'm going to bring this up now because I don't think we'll have a relevant time to bring it up later. And I think it was 1973, the U.S. government actually, or a team of researchers, U.S. government, someone found out that it wasn't actually a mine at all. It was actually just a um, problem with the design of the USS Maine. Um, so yeah. a small fire started and then kablooey. Um, so just keep that in mind going forward to like kind of recognize how stupid our entire involvement was. 
Yeah, well, and there's also allegations that we were taking munitions down to Cuba to arm the descendants of the revolution. Like, there, there's a lot of different things going around. But if you look at similar ship designs that we were putting out around that time, almost all of them ended up, like, blowing up and sinking at some point. Right. So it's more than likely that it was just a fault of the design. And luckily, this is the only time that the U.S. is going to send um, munitions and arms to the Cuban revolutionaries. Right. And also, it's the only time that uh, one of our munition ships uh, blows up and then we blame the other country and use it as a reason to get into war. But that's a whole (laughs) other topic. Right. Anyway, uh, it doesn't matter that the U.S. government didn't blame Spain because at this time we have yellow journalism, which... I had to go Google and make sure it wasn't a racist term because I wasn't quite sure, but it isn't, so we're okay. Basically, at this time, newspapers began exaggerating their coverage and at times just completely making up facts just because it sold papers. Right. And the two biggest contributors were a man named William Randolph Hearst and a man named Joseph Pulitzer. The man that the Pulitzer Prize is named after. I was about to say the Pulitzer. Yeah. The Pulitzer got famous from just making shit up. Like, (laughs) and that's a prize. That's a prize for outstanding. That's outstanding journalism. Yeah. Fun fact. The National Enquirer has won a Pulitzer Prize. Jesus. That does not surprise me. They blew the lid off. They blew the lid off the Monica Lewinsky case. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm sure no one believed it. They saw it in the Enquirer and they're like, ah, no, that paper did not sell. Well, no, the interesting thing with the National Enquirer is it's a bunch, it's like where real journalists go to die. So, like, actually, a lot of the journalists at the National Enquirer are just people that, like, have retired and still want hmm. that, like, good money. Um, yeah. So they'll go there and they'll, like, just, they'll go on leads that aren't as stable. And of course, you do have some that are like, man, I'm just trying to write articles. So they'll do the Bigfoot bullshit. Who wrote Bat Boy? Who was like, this is this is the big one. <laughs> Bat Boy's the big one. I don't know, but maybe we should bring him up for an I really, I'm really glad you did. Hey, maybe, maybe <laughs> we can get an interview out of him. Who knows? There we go. So it's funny because the papers of this time are so sensational that even William Randolph Hearst offered up $50,000 for, quote, the conviction of the criminals who sent 258 American soldiers to their deaths, end quote. I could not find where he ever paid that out, so I don't think it happened. No, because it's, 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 it's easy to offer up a bounty on something that you know doesn't exist. Exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> or, the, or you aren't sure it exists. It's like right now, like I could be like, and this isn't me like making a slight in any way, I feel super sorry for everyone in the Beirut explosion. No, 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 no. Okay, man, hold on, hold on. Back up, back up. Go Jeffrey Epstein. What? Go Jeffrey Epstein. Don't go Beirut. Okay, I'll go. No, because that one's still kind of sketchy. And you, you, let, let me let me say where I'm going with the Beirut one. Okay. If I now offered up like fifty thousand or something comparable, I'll say five hundred thousand dollars for the capture of the terrorist mastermind behind Beirut. Well, there's some pretty good evidence that it was probably just an accident. Like, it it wasn't like a terrorist attack. Of course, I can't say that for sure right now, but I got a pretty good idea, considering that's what the Lebanese government is saying. Um, So, like, it's like that. Like, I can offer up huge bounties on things if I know that, or if I have a pretty good idea that that's never going to come to fruition. But here's the thing, Cayman. If you had said Epstein 
and somebody did write in with the tip that led to the uh, to the arrest, we could definitely make m- way more money than five hundred thousand selling that book. Come on, not my job. Not get involved. That's <laughs> that's someone else's pay grade. I will I will forward that email to the appropriate people and then done with it. Don't want to be involved with that. That's not my legacy. So I thought you were a journalist, man. Come on. So anyway, Americans began demanding intervention in Cuba with the words, and I love this, remember the Maine to hell with Spain. See, this is the thing that really gets my goat. I'm supposed to remember the Maine, right? I'm supposed to remember the Alamo. I'm supposed to Uh remember Uh uh, Pearl Harbor. I'm supposed to remember 9-11. You're supposed to never forget 9-11. Right. Never forget. Is it not remember 9-11? Never forget. No, it's never forget. It's never forget. That's just, that's four things that I have to be thinking about congruently 24-7. You don't have to think mm-hmm. about them. You just have to not forget it. It's a big At ask. At least for 9-11. I, who's going to forget it? Well, the kids that weren't born. Here's one of the, here's one of the heaviest things that I ever heard, because this is when I was in eighth grade, and I'm not going to out the name of the teacher because he was a fantastic teacher. But my history teacher, like we had gotten up to modern history and he like mentioned, I, we were talking about terrorist attacks, something. I'm like seven. I, no, this is eighth grade. Um, how old are you in eighth grade? Not important. But he's talking about 9-11. He goes, he goes, you know, I think they did it all wrong. And everyone's like, what? And he's like, if I was wanting to orchestrate a terrorist attack, I'd crash three planes on like three no-name tiny counties in the U.S. because that's how you terrify people. And, like, essentially what he was saying is, like, if you start orchestrating terrorist attacks on, like, small towns, then no one's safe. And that, for some reason, like, sticks with me all the time. One, how messed up it was that he said that. But two, the fact that he's right. (laughs) Like, that would have terrified me. My parents were like, oh, we have nothing to worry about. We live in blank Tennessee, so... Uh, I'd like to buzz in and say things that we shouldn't put in the podcast, Alex. <laughs> well, no, I don't agree with it. It's just ter- it's a terrifying thought. Hey, let's let's talk about Cuba. You guys want to talk about Cuba? <laughs> let's talk. Yeah, let's talk about Cuba. You know what? That's right. actually what I came here for, believe it or not. So two months after the sinking of the USS Maine, the U.S. declared war on Spain, sparking the Spanish-American War. And honestly, I've heard of the Spanish-American War, but I never really knew what it was all about, and I thought it was a bigger deal than it actually was. After 30 years of fighting the Cubans, the Spanish army had pretty much been worn down, and this fresh crop of American troops basically just wiped them out and was able to declare victory in 10 days. Now, I, I'm going to say here, that's ex- that was our entire game plan that we forgot. This, this is how all of our wars went. We had the, the Spanish-American War, in which case we came in at the end when they were already worn down and we were the heroes because we ended the war. Um, I wouldn't call us the heroes, but... <laughs> well, heroes, at least in our eyes. World War I came around. Same thing. The German ar- army was already wore down. And we liked that one so much that we repeated it a second time and did the same exact thing, coming in late to the game and defeating a worn-down army. That doesn't mean that these wars weren't terrible, but that was kind of our game plan. And then, you know, once we got around to the Korean War, um, we were like, oh, what happened? Why didn't we win that? What happened? Uh, and then, you know, Vietnam, same deal. Uh, because we went in when they weren't already worn down by wars forever. We'd never fought a full army before. <laughs> right. 
you can argue that Vietnam had been worn down a little. Not that much. Not not as not as that's there's a whole lot of other reasons, but yeah. I, I feel like the whole going in when the army was ar- when the opposing force was already pretty weak, it was at least for fifty years a good American strategy. See, you say well, that, Cayman. I think the real strategy in the Spanish American War was they just let uh, Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders let loose on Cuba, and they just cleaned up. Like they just made it, made it happen. The Rough Riders. That's what it's riders. all about. So, Cayman, I have to ask: Do you think that the Cuban insurgents could have actually won that war without the United States? Um, I'm going to go at, I, and I, I, gonna be honest, I did not research the Spanish American War as much as I could have, as much as I should have. Um. I think they were already winning. And I think that's mm-hmm. the view of the Cuban people that we didn't really need America to step in there uh, or that they didn't need. I'm saying we, I'm not a Cuban, um, that they didn't need America to step in there, but America did and stole some of the glory and got the Platt Amendment, which we'll come back to later. Yeah. But I, you know, I, uneducated opinion. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, like you said, it's it's a hotly debated topic. A lot of Cuban people see it as we just kind of stepped in and won at the end. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, obviously America, we're like, hey, we won the war. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs> hey, like, uh, Yosemite Sam. The Spanish-American War, not the war that Cuba had already been fighting Cuba's for years. Cuba's not even mentioned. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh. But anyway, if you have a hot take, email us at podcast at irwyh.com. Please do. I'd really like to know more about the Spanish-American War. Yeah. <laughs> write us a write us a uh, write us a haiku about the Spanish-American War. Um, <laughs> anyway, so the war formally ends when the United States and Spain signed the Treaty of Paris, and Cuba gains its independence from Spanish rule. However, it was really just the start of Cuba's life under the watchful eye of the United States. Basically, they end up trading Spain for the United States. You see, when the Spanish-American War ended, the American forces didn't leave Cuba because we always have to just help the country get started, you know, make sure that they're on the right path of democracy. Well, we're so good at it. Yeah, we're great at it. <laughs> um, so two years after the end of the war, the Platt Amendment, which came and mentioned, uh, outlined the role that the United States would continue to play in the ongoing Cuban government. The amendment declared the following. One. You can't let other countries house a military or a navy in Cuba. Two, we're going to build Guantanamo Bay, which I'm sure we will probably cover in the future. We don't have time to cover it right now, but Guantanamo Bay, as I'm sure you know, is a hellhole. Three, the United States can get involved in any of your domestic and international business whenever it sees fit. Four, you can't alter this agreement. And five, you can't declare war on the United States. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and get this out of the way now. I do have somewhat of a tie to this topic. I'm going to say not really I have a tie to this topic. Um, My father actually grew up in Cuba. Um, Does that mean that my father was Cuban? No, not even slightly. My dad was a Navy brat who grew up in Guantanamo Bay. So... Um, was he tortured? Gu- no, Guantanamo Bay has not always been a prison. Uh, my grandfather was an air traffic controller at Guantanamo Bay. So his family grew up there. Even when it was you know. a prison, they would still need air traffic controllers. That's still a, like a major airport. Well, I know, but it wasn't always 
I mean, you could still be an air traffic controller. It hasn't with... always been a prison, has it? I don't know. I've never asked this question. I, don't I just know. assumed you, you it can wasn't. find out in our future Guantanamo Bay episode. But Let's move on. Honestly, I don't want to learn I more mean, about my past. A lot of, I mean, a lot of military families live on the base, like today. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. matter that it's a prison. That still happens. That's all I'm yeah, saying. That's where my dad, my dad lived in Cuba. When so he it may got or may not have been a prison. Six that's foot where we're at. Okay. <laughs> it was a prison. But yeah, dad grew up in Probably Cuba, was, not yeah. Cuban. Really quickly. Uh, if he grew up on the military base, that is technically American soil. So right. your dad That's didn't grow saying. up in Cuba. He's an American. Your dad grew up in America. Oh, oh yeah. just American soil in, encompassed. You're right. You're right. My dad right. didn't. Okay. My dad didn't grow <laughs> he up He was in America. Cuba. Okay, sorry. The United States also <laughs> essentially appointed the first Cuban president named Thomas Palma as he ran completely unopposed. In fact, instead of, you know, campaigning, going to talk to the people of Cuba, he remained in the United States where he was a citizen until he was able to take office. You son of a bitch. You got the easiest Cuban president's name to say. Yeah, I know. Thomas Palma. Well, I mean, he 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 like was born in Cuba and then he spent like his whole life in America. Like that's why they put him in place is like this is an American guy that we right. definitely got hold on. Yep. Um. And, and in fact, I didn't put this in my notes, but I do want to mention it. He actually was running against someone, but the guy he was running against dropped out because he was like, there's no point in even running. Like, this is not a fair race. Um, <laughs> so he didn't run unopposed, but he won unopposed, if that makes right. sense. Yeah. Okay, I got you. So Palma served his first term, but then allegedly rigged the election for his second term. And this sparked a huge revolt which rocked Cuba and the United States decided to send more troops in. So they had just left to leave this, you know, new president in place, but um, had to come right back in. Oh boy. I hope another president doesn't do that later. Uh, I, well, we'll talk about it. Um, <laughs> so Palma resigned and was replaced by a dude from Minnesota. Like he had been put in place of other foreign countries for the United States. He had experience, but he wasn't a Cuban. And, this made it clear that America didn't seem to understand why the Cuban people were upset. Eventually, the Cubans were able to reclaim the role of president. However, that president lost the next election, and then another revolt broke out, which prompted the U.S. to send even more troops to shut that one down. Now you're starting to see the pattern, and it's going to continue. Like, this does not stop. It's just corrupt politician or giant outbreak of protests and then the U.S. sends troops in. Like, this is a cycle that repeats and repeats and repeats. Anyway, at this time, World War One is starting to get into full swing. And Cuba declares war on the Germans, which is a great gesture. The problem is, the Cuban people don't have the resources to actually send their military over to Europe. They couldn't send troops, but they could send something even more valuable, which was sugar. 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 Sugar, yes. Sugar. Everybody wants it. Everybody needs it. We need our cereals. Our sugared cereals. At this time, the price of sugar was skyrocketing because World War II was causing so many trade routes to be disrupted because, as we all know about the German people, they love to sink ships with their submarines. Oh, U-boats. More like you don't get those commodities boats. 
No nice. sugar for you boats. <laughs> More like you troops are gonna sink Star. in the ocean. <laughs> True boats. Got him. Uh, yeah, nice. you boats were there were uh, they were the atomic bomb before the atomic bomb. Right. Except they were very isolated. I don't know that you can call them an atomic bomb. Okay. Well, it, it, here's the thing. The U.S., if everyone was attacking, if everyone was at war with the U.S., and everyone, I mean everyone important, not Italy, who cares? If everyone important was at war with the U.S. when we first got the, like, atomic bomb, like, we could have caused some destruction, but we couldn't have produced bombs fast enough to end that war. True. Whereas the U-boats were kind of the same thing. Like, for a while, there just wasn't an answer to U-boats. Like, it was just yeah. like, yeah, they're just going to sink our ships. Mm-hmm. We, then there's nothing we can do about it. And it was a scramble to find something to do about it. And then we built the atomic bomb, and we were like, we'll nuke the ocean. And then what will they do? <laughs> Those are called sub-rocks. They're actually a real thing. Atomic um, atomic submarine Are missiles. you serious? <laughs> yeah, my dad My dad got to see them tested. My dad was a, a submariner. He was on a submarine when he was in the Navy. I broke a family tradition. <laughs> Aren't I cool? Um, but yeah, they, they got to see the testing of the sub rocks and essentially the point is you fire it under a ship, the sub rock, um, ignites an atomic explosion underneath the ship. That's not what destroys the ship. What destroys the ship is all of the water in the vicinity immediately getting vaporized and the ship falling into the ocean. Jesus. Yeah. They're terrifying. You can look at videos of them being used. Yeah. They're, they're terrifying. Yeah, I'm scared right now, and I've never been on a battleship. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's like the thing is, I think with World War II, at least, we bluffed and said that we had more atomic bombs, like, ready to blow right. up more Japanese cities. And the, the reality is we did not. We had, we had Little Man, and we had Fat Boy, and that was it at the time. Right, anyway. and really, uh, the USSR pulled the same trick for the next, you know, 80 years. That doesn't sound right. Not 80 like 50 some number but you'll find out more about that when we cover the cuban missile crisis (laughs) okay let's let's move we keep there's a lot of good opportunities get sidetracked cuba is very involved it's so interesting like this has been a great topic one of our neighbors we only have a few neighbors and cuba is one of them cuba is the second most impressive but the most interesting yeah So anyway, due to the lack of trade routes and the high demand for sugar, the price of sugar skyrocketed, which caused a economic surplus in Cuba as they were a huge producer of it. And many farmers decided, hey, why would I grow potatoes when I could grow sugar and make a ton of money? Yeah. The problem was that World War One concluded and the price of sugar returned to the normal price and Cuba was producing so much that the price, you know, basically, I mean, it, it caused an economic slump. Yeah, bottom and, it out. Yeah, and so many people were then producing sugar that they didn't have another crop to fall back on. So, basically, Cuba got to find out what the Great Depression was like shortly before the rest of the world. Yeah, and uh, Michael just touched on something there that is a... Huge topic you can get into with the problems with crack, cash crops. Um, the and, huge problem with crack. Well, the huge problem with cash crops. The huge problem with crash, cash crop. That's a that's a hard one. Regardless, so I'm I'm going I'm going to rewind it just a little bit. 
not that far from where Michael was. So he's talking about, you know, the world wars and all that. Um, but here I'm going to get into the next president you need to know about, the next big president. So his name was, and have we issued an apology for our destruction of the Spanish language yet? I'm sorry for Cayman's destruction of the Spanish language. I'm going to do a great job. Cayman's going to butcher it. I highly doubt it. I'm sorry if we have any Spanish listeners that think that I'm doing it wrong. I am really giving it my best. I promise. I really need to learn Spanish, but uh, I can barely speak English, so I'm getting there. So the next person that you need to know about is Gerardo Machado y Morales. That's actually pretty good. Yeah, I see. I've I've been practicing. I'm not going to do that well the entire time. I'm just going to call him Machado from here on out. That's easy. Those are good English vowels that I can really hammer down. So Machado was the youngest general in the Cuban War for Independence and was overall a pretty well-received person, at least politically. (laughs) Machado took office in 1925, uh, and he actually, from what I can tell, I'm reading about him, he did a pretty decent job his first term in office. He invested heavily into Cuba's infrastructure, built a lot of um, buildings, especially like the parliament building that they would use for a long time after that. Um, And he was against American involvement. He wanted to repeal the Platt Amendment, so he said so. Um because he didn't feel like it was America's responsibility to keep the peace in Cuba. He felt like no, but, the but, Cuban but government Cayman, is getting I, th- I think you're forgetting it. that the the number 4 part of the Platt amendment was you can't alter this agreement. So like it's Right. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> we'll, like it's we'll there's see. not even an, Yeah, you can't we'll, do it. We'll see if you can. I, I you know, history might prove the Platt amendment wrong. Um I don't think so. So, you know, th- I think that was a good move, campaigning on that. Like, that's definitely something that they should have gotten rid of as soon as they could have, um, because a lot of other countries, we've made that deal with them, and it just it, it doesn't work out. So that's a good call, Machado. Um, and he said he wasn't going to run for a second term. He said that he was a one-term president. Uh, halfway into his first term, he changed his mind. And decided, As we'll was- see with many Cuban leaders, they <laughs> yes. decide, hey, this is pretty neat. Maybe I'd want to keep doing this. Yeah, so he, he really likes that power. It really gets to him. Um, so in 1927, Machado pushed a series of amendments into law that would allow him to run again and retain power. Um, also, he kind of maybe skewed the system so that he ran unopposed in 1929 and was reelected. This made a lot of enemies, um, as it will again and again in Cuba. Um, The Cuban people really want a democratically elected government. The Cuban rulers cannot give it to them, have never been able to give it to them, but we'll get into that. So um, nowhere was the rage of anti-democratic behavior more prominent than at the University of Havana. And I'm going to bring up the University of Havana because that actually plays a major role in the story. The University of Havana, uh, it was the only university in Cuba at this time. Um, but that's where a lot of political discussion and discourse happened. Um, so the first group I'm going to bring up is called um, the Federación Estudiantil Universitia. Um, this was, um, from now on, I'm calling it the FEU. I've given it my best Probably shot. Probably a good choice. I'm calling it the FEU. Um, was widely against Machado. And there were, I, I want to bring them up. I'm going to bring up a few of these because political student organizations were very big. And 
political student organizations at the University of Havana, Havana being the only uh, institute of higher education in Cuba, actually played a big role in politics and the government. Um, so the FEU was widely against Machado. This group was created by Julio Antonio Mella, who founded the Cuban Communist Party in the 1920s. If that gives you any sort of idea what this group was kind of like. Um, and this was a popular group, especially among the students. And for Julio Antonio Mella's outspokenness against Machado, he was exiled and assassinated in Mexico City in 1930. That Keep, keep that one in mind. Keep that one in mind, because that's a big deal. Now, the Directorio Estudiantil Universi Universitario, which from now on will be termed the DEU, was formed in 1927 specifically to oppose Machado. So a lot like the FEU. Um, very similar thing. Um, after Mella's death, the protest from the DEU um, because the DEU was very upset about it, uh, was met with violence from government troops. And these were government troops under Machado's, you know, government. Uh, he was the one orchestrating all this. Um, many students were injured and killed in these protests. Uh, and after this event, Machado shut the university down and had all DEU members arrested. Uh, a lot of these people would go on to become radicalized in prison, like people very much do. Uh, and this is a hot tip for any government leaders that might be listening to the podcast. If people already don't like you, and then you send them to prison, they're going to like you a whole lot less by the time that they're done. And they Regardless. all get together. Like, if you, yeah. if you only arrest your dissenters, <laughs> they all get together and they all talk to each other and they find out all the things that they don't like about you. Another thing that Cuba can't figure out, like, this is another thing that keeps happening, but we'll get into it. <laughs> well, um, and uh, we'll get into it later, but, like, the other thing is, if you do that, maybe don't let them out afterwards. Right, but that's again, also a pretty good idea. We'll get into it. See, Cubans are weird because, like, I've already been talking about Machado. And, like, Machado did a, like, bunch of really cool stuff. And then, like, his power went to his head. And then he started being shitty and taking away yep. people's rights. Yep, that's another That's it's another. It's going to happen theme. again. Yeah, it, just, again. <laughs> it just keeps happening. It's just, yep. It's weird. Um, so it's important to mention that during this time, and like Michael said, the Great Depression's in full... Sh the Full swing. Like Michael mentioned during this time, the Great Depression is in full swing, uh, with Cuba's economy already struggling because of, you know, sugar and crops not really working out like they're supposed to. Um, but the impact had been all that much worse in Cuba because of what was happening uh, with the world economy, pretty much. So to top it off, during this time... Machado was living in the absolute lap of luxury. He was throwing extravagant parties, having women over, real Marie Antoinette stuff, um, which made the general populace hate him that much more. Um, in response, many people turned to violence in opposition to the increasingly unpopular Machado, and he met them with violence back using his own government troops. And all this really culminated 
1933. Now, 1933 is a very big year for Cuba, and I'm going to get into that. So just two years prior to 1933, an anti-Machado group Some called, might even say 1931. Some might even say 1931 was an important part. No, so just two years prior, an anti-Machado group called ABC was formed. Now, they were named ABC because... At the top, you had the A group, which was the the leaders, and then beneath that, you had the B group, which were like the semi-leaders, and then the C group. So it's just kind of like a weird organizational thing. Um, but from now on, I won't bring that up again because it's not that interesting. So well, it's just the ABC group. Hold on. So does the ABC group enjoy Grey's Anatomy, Modern Family, The Bachelor, The Good Doctor, Blackish? Oh my God, Colin, shove it up your ass! No, no. I, I knew that there was going to be some dumbass joke made about ABC, which is the only reason that I described why it was called ABC. Grey's Anatomy is an excellent show. So. Oh, my. Mm. After this podcast is over, I'm going to go kick Colin's ass. Uh, Dude, I'm going to watch some Grey's Anatomy <laughs> sponsored by ABC. Oh, geez, ABC, ABC. ABC family. Watch our old. Oh, wait. No, never mind. I was about to say who's watch line, the but... Grinch when December rolls around. Watch it again and again because we air it every day because we hate you. Okay, so yeah, now that y'all are making fun of the ABC, you want to hear about how they killed people? Sure. <laughs> um, so- Is it by making them watch The Grinch until they killed themselves? <laughs> no, but that probably would have worked. Uh, so-, so through dissemination of propaganda and terrorist acts, they had begun to put the knife to Machado's throat. And I'm going to say figuratively here. Um, but, but they would know, have done it literally if they had the opportunity. Assassinations, gang violence, protest. And we're going to see the term gang violence used a lot in Cuban's history. It's a very loose term. Essentially, any time that a protest gets out of hand, they call it a gang. And that group is forever a gang. Um, but ABC was a little bit more intentional. In their, in their pursuits. So these, I feel comfortable calling them terrorist acts. Um, now, this group was also very much in close contact with the DEU that I mentioned earlier, which came from the FEU, uh, sharing many members once they had been released from prison um, because a lot of them got in prison at the same time. Karma's a bitch, Machado. You radicalize these people, and now you have the ABC. Uh, so, in fact, the situation was so tense in Cuba that uh, America started sweating. A lot of people were really worried about their economic interest, I'll say. Um, you see, during this time, as Michael mentioned, the U.S. was very heavily invested in Cuba, at least in an economic sense. And tourism and businesses in Cuba left a lot of money to be made. And it always somehow seemed to benefit America more than it benefited Cuba. And, you know, I mean, that sounds very similar. Maybe they should send a battleship down there and see if, you know, maybe they could defend America's interests. In 1933, good old FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, which in my opinion is one of the best. Okay, I'm pouring wine during this. I know that it's going to get Colin all flustered. Yo, I'm going to be This sounds going to be in the background. Future me is upset. No, but see, okay, we're just, just before, don't edit it out. Back into just, it. Don't, hold on. just don't edit it out. It's fine. I already described what that noise was. 1933, good old FDR appointed diplomat Sumner Wells to mediate discussions between Machado and opposing parties. 
And, you know, Platt Amendment, remember? So the U.S. has this right to do this. Um, see, when Machado heard that Wells was coming, he was super excited because he's like, I've been in the pocket of the Americans for a while. I've been working towards their best interest, so I'm fine. What he didn't realize is that while he was working in interest, while he was working in the best interest of his American, how should I say, beneficiators, his American endorsers, benefactors, that's the word, beneficiaries, beneficiaries. Um, He was doing a shit job. (laughs) So like uh, this wasn't going to work out for him like he thought. Um, so when Wells arrived, he began, when Wells arrived, he began mediating the release of Machado's political opponents with the promise of inviting them to the table for a restructuring of the government. He bargained this, no, he bargained this with Machado by saying that the U S could offer a commercial treaty if he could reach a political settlement with his opponents. Machado agreed, and lo and behold, who shows up for the table for discussions but the leadership of the ABC? <laughs> That's right, the terrorist group. It's it's like that scene in Spider-Man Homecoming when the door opens and it's the vulture standing there. <laughs> <laughs> and dude, it's exactly like that. And because it's like, I'm, oh no, this is not going to go like I expected at all. <laughs> you're this right. is the no, opposite guys, of what Ellen I wanted. Pompeo from Grey's Anatomy. So, yeah, uh, I mean, that's that's a little bit of, you know, um, stop bringing up Grey's Anatomy. But, yeah, no, Michael hit the hammer on the head because the minute that Machado realized that the ABC was there, he realized that these negotiations weren't going to go his way and began to denounce Wells and all American interference, saying that America shouldn't interfere in Cuban politics, which is... You know, ironic, all things considered. Um, So by this point, it was obviously too late for Machado. Wells met with Rafael Goss Inclan. That was real bad, but I'm going to go with it. You did a great job. I love that. So he was president of the Cuban Chamber of Representatives. And he asked Gauss, which is what I'll call him now, um, to drop the articles of impeachment against Machado. When Gauss refused, Wells then approached the military leaders of Cuba, telling them that if Machado was not removed from his post, the U.S. military would step in and restructure the Cuban military after it took control. So, B-D-E. If you don't know what that means, look it up, but Wells had a lot of it. Um, Shortly after, Machado fled the country and a new constitution was being drafted. Um, so getting at the military re- leaders is is probably the best way to go. So, Michael, let's talk about the new Cuban government. You want to talk about the new Cuban government? I would love to talk about the new Cuban government. Great. I've been dying to talk about the new Cuban government with you all day. Um, I, I wrote that and I didn't even, now that I'm saying it, I'm getting some always sunny vibes that I did That's not That's exactly intend. what I was thinking when I saw it, so. Yeah, I didn't intend for that. I was probably doing something subconsciously, regardless. So shortly after Machado jumped ship, uh, this dude, Carlos Manuel de Cipides y Quesada, is offered the role of president by the provisional government to serve out the rest of Machado's term. He takes office on August 12, 1933. 
and his qualifications were pretty much he was a diplomat dude who really hated Machado and had a Cuban revolutionary hero for a dad. Um, so how do you think this is going to go? Really well. I think I think this dude's going to kill it. I've got my money on this guy. I think he's going to be the one to step in. Like, I mean, we all know Carlos Manuel de Cepedas de Quesadilla. Oh, it's not Quesadilla, one. Two, um, you're wrong. It's going to go real poorly. Um, so Wells, after the entire shindig that he set up was in motion, said, and this is a quote from uh, Wells, I am rapidly becoming, <clears throat> I'm actually going to do a Wells voice here. I am rapidly coming to the conclusion that my original hope that the present government of Cuba, Cespedes administration, could govern as a constitutional government for the remainder of the term for which General Machado had himself been elected, and that plan must be abandoned. I did add a little bit to make that sentence make more sense. It was kind of a run on on Wells' part. But you get what I mean. Um, and all this Wells concern for all this stuff, we're going to put that to the side because it doesn't matter right now. Because it's time for me to start describing the Sergeant's Rebellion. Of course, I'm going to say that. But before I can get to the Sergeant's Rebellion, let me explain a couple things. Now, through dealings of the new administration, ABC had actually gained some power. Seats in the president's cabinet, men in power, etc. All that sort of stuff. Um, they had a member in the military named Valencio Batista. And remember that name because I promise it's going to be super important. Super, super important. So I said through the dealings of the new administration, ABC had actually gained some power, which was seats in the president's cabinet, men in power, etc. That's probably because Grey's Anatomy won four primetime Emmy Awards and two oh Golden Globes. Oh my God. Colin, the joke was funny the first time, but now you're I'm destroying it. it. Please stop. I'm sticking with it. Okay. So they also had a member at the ABC um, in the military named Flincio Batista. Now, the other thing I need to explain before the Sergeant's Rebellion is that the army thing just wasn't working out. See, a lot of power at this time rested in the military. Now, it was pressure on the military that got Machado out of office. And a lot of military commanders were leftovers from the Machado administration. And a lot of them were arrested because of their participation in Machado's administration. Remember, he, Machado was using police force to fight student organizations, fight protesters, call them gangs until they actually became gangs. Um, and this is something that we're going to see over and over again. We're really, the military police are also gangs. So this caused a lot of tension on both sides, especially after the new government took place. See, the new government wasn't happy that they still held power, uh, being the people in the military, and they were honestly kind of afraid of them because it's that thin ice that you're standing on where, yeah, I am the leader, but the military was from the past administration, and if they don't like me, if they decide to do something, I'm screwed. And the yeah, new but army I mean, was... That all comes from the fact that literally every person that takes power just decides when they're going to leave power. Like, there's right. no there's no guarantee because every... There's no, like, okay, I'm done being the leader. Somebody else come be the leader. Like, it's just like, okay, when is somebody else going to say I'm the leader now? Like, there's no... Right. And yeah, and 
we're going to watch the story play out and you'll see what Michael's saying play out over and over again. We've already seen it play out a little bit. Um, but so at this time, also, the army was afraid to step in with keeping the peace amongst protests and that sort of things because they didn't want to be ousted from the military. You got to think a lot of military people, and this isn't necessarily as true maybe in modern U.S. terms as it has been in the past, and maybe not as true as Cuba at this time, but this is your job. The military is a lifestyle, but it's also a job. And when something threatens your job and your lifestyle and the entire way that you get your bread and butter and respect and the way that you respect yourself, it's threatening. So the military just stopped doing everything. They were like, I don't want to get caught on the wrong side of this new political administration and lose my entire livelihood. Um, so... Now I'm going to cover, and I, I promise this is all a part of the Sergeant's Rebellion. It's very important. But I'm going to cover a group of people called the Junta of the Eight. Now, it's probably the Junta of the Eight. The, yeah, probably the Junta of the Eight. You're right. Now, their ambitions start uh, as a group to improve conditions in the army. Um, see, a lot of back pay problems were happening right now where... A new government had stepped in. They were trying to figure out how pay worked, all that sort of stuff. Some paychecks get missed. You know, if you have a complete government revolution, like everything's going to be funky for a while. Eventually, these talks to improve conditions in the army become plans for an entire regime change. <laughs> so the group consisted of Batista, uh, who we talked about before, who I told you to remember. I hope you're still remembering him. Still super important. And... Um, also, it consisted of a few other ABC members, along with some non-ABC members, but they're not as important. You can look up this whole Sergeant's Rebellion if you want, but we can't cover every detail. So at a meeting of sergeants and enlisted men on September 3rd, tensions got really high. They were questioning the back pay, like I talked about, and their promotions. One thing led to another, and eventually Batista hopped up on a stage and declared, quote, from this moment forward, do not obey anyone's orders but mine. First sergeants must immediately take control of their respective military units. This worked. This wasn't... And now, keep in mind, sergeant is a relatively... So, hold on. Sergeant so this is guy not an is officer. Just like, like, he was just like, all right, I'm just going to take control. Let's just see what happens. Like This is just... Batista and I will he improved his way to the top because as we'll find out like no this I well here's what I'm gonna say there was a um this I didn't originally include I didn't originally include this in my notes because I didn't want to stretch it out too long there was a funeral for a major military leader who I believe had died under the Machado administration Batista gave a big speech at that funeral um, which hit the newspapers in Cuba, kind of fluffing up his ego. Um, Batista was a very personable person. He he knew how to talk to people. He was charismatic. So when yeah. he hopped up on that table, people followed him. There was no right. direction. There was hardly any leadership in the army at this time. Either the leaders had been arrested, shot, mm -hmm. Or just weren't doing anything because they wanted to protect their jobs. And the lower army was fed up of it. So even though this guy was only a sergeant, he 
he ended up leading the army. Um, so they started contacting other sympathetic military personnel, a lot of other sergeants in the military who joined behind Batista. And um, they also got a lot of members of, and I'm bringing them back, the ZEU involved, which once again, this is the uh, University this of Havana is the best of. This is the best of. We've got the ABC, <laughs> we've got the DEU, we've got just the military in general. Like, right. This is the, this um, is the album that's going to sell big. Yeah, so soon Batista had taken the base, and it wasn't long after that that he took over the entire country. And it really was that fast. Like, I am not leaving out a bunch of details here. There's obviously some little ones, but it really was that fast. Um, So the former administration, to describe how fast it was, lasted from August 12th to September 5th. It didn't even last a month before there was a revolution one guy stood up challenged everything and then took over his military base took over the entire country so that administration did not last long so now the government's changed hands again uh, less than a month later now cespedes did stay in Cuba, when they asked him to step down, he immediately did. He actually later became ambassador to Spain for Cuba. So he still stayed in politics. Um, I think that he kind of played the crowd right. He saw his cards and he played them appropriately there. Um, so now the government's changed hands again, like we said. Uh, this time a new government was formed in which Batista and the student directory, which is the DEU again, if we're translating that to English, it's student directory. Regardless, um, they promoted a man named Ramon Grau to the row of president. Also Ramon, remember Ramon Grau, because he's going to be very important also. Yep. Now, his administration would be referred to as the 100 Days Administration. You want to guess why? Is it because he declared there would be a pizza party every 100 days? It's certainly not. It's because his government lasted almost 100 days. It really didn't. More like 90. Uh, so Batista, that's, that's much 100 days. I mean, come on. Batista, who we've been talking about, had been talking to this guy known as Sumner Wells. Now, do you remember him? You remember that discussion? I remember him. Uh, so yeah, U.S. ambassador to Cuba and I think you know a few other Southern American uh, countries. Um, but essentially Batista and Wells figured out that it was really Batista that had Cuba's and (coughs) America's best interest at heart. Unfortunately, Batista didn't have enough control over Grau. So Wells and Batista told Grau that in order for the U.S. to recognize Cuba's new government, Grau would have to step down. This took like three months for all these conversations to take place. And honestly, I bet it was mostly having to use uh, a telegraph with Wells and Batista. But, you know, who knows? This is the 1950s came in. They had telephones by this point. This isn't the 1950s yet. It's like the 40s. No, we're we're still in the 30s. We're still in 33. Even still, they had telephones. Well, probably, but... That ping. Um, 
so now Batista would, wouldn't actually be able to take office, even though it kind of seemed like that's what Subner Wells wanted. Um, instead, for the next six years, he would control Cuba through a series of puppet presidents while remaining head of the military. Now, first was Carlos Mendieta. He was a provisional president for one year. Um, during his presidency, the Platt Amendment was rescinded. So hold on. But 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 rule they number rescinded four, the, the Platt. Okay, no, yeah, the Amer- no. yeah, the United States can do whatever they want. Uh, yeah, and Cuba said no more. I we might get into if America recognized this the next episode. Who knows? Um. So after uh, Mendieta was. Jose Agripio Barnett, he was interim president, not provisional president, so we see we have to change these titles every time. Um, now, he was in this position for six months. Right, he was relatively separates up. an interim president from a provisional president is an interim <laughs> president only serves six months, a provisional president serves <laughs> a year. I, I don't, I didn't have the brain power to figure out why they kept calling them different things and if what was going on doesn't matter he was super uneventful i couldn't find a lot of information about him at least not any information that i cared about like for some reason i think i found a wikipedia page that talked about his wife i I wasn't interested um miguel mariano gomez now this was the first actual president and he was president for six months but remember when i said that batista was controlling these puppet presidents um, Miguel Mariano Gomez uh, vetoed a tax on sugar that Batista wanted passed because it would fund rural schools. Now, he claims that he impeached it because the schools would have been under army control because for some reason it was the army's responsibility to set up these schools and appoint teachers. Um, regardless, this is something that got him impeached because it was Batista that was in control, not Gomez. So after him was Federico Larieto Brew. Um, I'm not sure if B-R-U is actually Brew. If it is, that's a dope name. Um, but he was actually president for four years. So, <laughs> woohoo! We got someone he who made it through. Term. <laughs> he had a full term. And that's really uh, because he was um, very submissive to Batista. Is it if Spanish? If to be honest. Yeah, it's brew, it's, so it's B-R-U it's with a thing over it. Bru- but it has oh, a, wait, it has an accent mark. I mark. have no idea. If it has an accent mark, I have no idea. Regardless, uh, so he was really in bed with Batista. He was the most transparently Batista president, which is why he served four years. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to give Batista this credit because he becomes a bad guy, even though he did support these things. Um, here's things that happened under the Brew presidency. Uh, he supported workers' rights, he supported unions, and he decreased U.S. influence in Cuba. So all great things. We all like that. You know, the eight-hour workday, um, social security, that But that doesn't that sound sort of like a Batista puppet. Like, to decrease the U.S.'s influence? Batista did though he because essentially the thing is here's how you decrease U.S. influence you 
suck up to the U.S., make it seem like all the deals are going in their way, but you're actually pretty smart and you're making the deals more level on both sides. Yeah, I guess I, I guess I just um, I, I know I know where the story goes. So like I'm confused, right. but and we, we'll get into yeah. it. And we like we like to look back on a lot of these bad people mm-hmm. and and say that they weren't smart. Typically, if a bad person gets into power, they have a certain amount of understanding. They're typically a pretty smart person yeah. uh, that doesn't make them not bad. Batista ends up definitely becoming a bad person, but I think that he probably was a pretty smart little cookie. Yeah. Um, and he did do some decent things. That's going to keep coming up again with Cuba. Um, but you know, it comes up all over the world. Uh, bad people do good things sometimes. So, uh, don't don't take this as me praising him. He did do this good stuff. Um, now, in 1940, Batista actually did become president. Uh, and he seemingly did a pretty good job. Uh, he was very pro-union like he was under Brew. Uh, very pro-workers' rights. And although his party was democratic socialist, and I'm going to say that as old terms, democratic socialist in the way that like FDR was democratic socialist. Like, definitely was a socialist, but... You know, especially here in the U.S., that term gets thrown around a lot and muddled, and I, I think it definitely has a connotation to it. This isn't like modern term democratic socialist, um, at least not in the negative ways. Um, so he was then endorsed also by the Communist Party. Uh, he he definitely was not a communist at this time, um, but the Communist Party saw that he was doing some very basic socialist things like the eight hour work day, the five days a week, the social security that I was talking about, um, and decided that he was better than any alternative that had ever existed at that point. So he carried out a lot of social reforms in that way. Now, uh, even entering world war two, and this is the last thing that I'll say on Batista's presidency, because we cannot be here all day. Uh, he was on the allies side, only two days after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. So, you know, 1940 Kind of sounds like he's in America's back pocket to me. I mean, that does sound like America's back pocket, but Japan pulled the sneaky. I, I love Japan. I could talk about Japan all day and how they're winning the culture war in the U.S. right now. Like, I'm wearing a t-shirt that has an anime on it. Hey, we you know, we all love our animes. All right. Anyway, right. But back but, to you know, Cuba. But that was yeah. So I I call that a good thing. I think that you think Batista, Pearl Harbor was a good thing. That's what no no no. I think Batista was just. I would like to talk about Cuba side. instead of Cayman talking about how he loves Jesus, Pearl Harbor. No no. I remember Pearl Harbor, man. Uh, he remembers it, and he remembers it fondly. <laughs> so after leaving office, Batista selected a man named Carlos Zayas as his successor. Um, now, just because he selected him doesn't mean anything, because, again, there's still elections in Cuba. The thing is, Zayas wasn't really liked among the people, and he actually lost the election to Roman Grau, who, as we talked about previously, was the man who Batista had kicked out of office. Right. Uh, using so he the support was... of the American people. Right, so he was the 100-day presidency yes. kind of thing, even though it was only three months, more like 90. Well, it's not important, but yeah, he lost. He lost a Democratic election. So uh, Z- Batista did. 
Yeah, I mean, but because Zayas was gonna be well, right. Zayas was gonna be another puppet, right? So exactly. Matter. So he yeah. indirectly lost an election, and this really upset Batista, who was then acting president. And he did the very mature and responsible thing, and he made the transition of power a living hell for Grau by basically <laughs> refusing to cooperate. Like he basically just did nothing to to bring Grau back into the presidency. Um, and then once Grau had taken power, Batista then decided he just needed to take a vacation, and he went back to the United States, where he owned a house in Daytona Beach, Florida. And while he was in Florida, he decided to do the thing that every good American does, and he divorced his wife and married his mistress. Batista won a Cuban Senate seat, despite not being in the country at all. He was in America, and he still won a Cuban Senate seat. Impressive. It is. It's great. Um, so Batista returned to Cuba and decided, nah, I don't want to be in Senate. I think I want to be president. So he ran for president again. How'd that work out for lost again. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, and, and to say he lost again, I mean, it's really the first presidential thing he lost. Um, but, but let's, let's be honest. Zayas was going to be, a, he was like, a that it's, was, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a Batista loss, but it wasn't a right. direct Batista loss. This is the direct Batista loss. Yeah. Um, so then he, I, I guess he gave up his Senate seat to run for president. So, he, so for four years, he just kind of sat idle, but then again, in 1952, he decides to run for president yet again. And He's not doing very well in the polls. He's in third place behind two different parties. And that's when Batista basically decides, like, hey, do we really even need people to vote for us? Because I've still got a lot of influence in the military. So he used that military influence to round up an army and just kind of force the sitting president out of his position so and appoint coup. himself as the new leader. Yeah, it was a military, a military coup. coup. Yeah. Yep. And this yeah. coup was bloodless, and Batista later boasted that the whole thing lasted an hour and 17 minutes. I mean, this is his second, yeah, quote-unquote, like, bloodless yeah. coup. There was a battle after the Sergeant's Rebellion, um, but um, it, it, he's taking power. Dude's at least experience. when he initially takes it, like <laughs> when he initially takes it, it's, like peaceful at least he just shows up with overwhelming force and wins yeah like, he's just like hey i mean i what what do you do like i mean you're the president you're like no and then it's like all right well you're gonna get shot like here's 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 the deal like you either leave or i'm gonna shoot you it's like and right and it's important to remember me. at this time like batista has constantly remained a leader in the military like he was the commander in chief for a long time of the cuban military and then uh, you know even when he took his um presidency like he definitely still had a lot of pull because everyone directly underneath him had been appointed by him uh there was fierce loyalty within the batista military um yeah but you continue michael yeah so within bad. weeks, the U.S. government had recognized Batista's claim to leadership as legitimate. Like basically, they're like, "All right, Batista's the new leader of Cuba," which yeah. makes sense. I mean, I, I, there's no definitive evidence, but there's a good chance that they wanted Batista to take power again because he was the U.S.'s guy. Oh yeah, and Uncle Sam and Batista were in bed together this entire time, and it, it really, you can just look at other countries in South America and. 
the U.S. was doing the same thing. The U.S. was constantly disposing leaders that they didn't want and appointing ones that they did undemocratically. So it's not a stretch to say that they were doing this with Batista. They were definitely doing this with Batista. Right. So as his first act as new leader of the country, Batista decided to rip up the Constitution of 1940 that he himself had helped to create. <laughs> Ripping up constitutions is lit as fuck, Who dog. needs people's rights? Fuck them. So, <laughs> basically, this stripped away all the rights that he had advocated for roughly a decade prior. Things like outlawing discrimination based on gender and equal pay for equal work. And it probably had something to do with the fact that he he had now gone from the lower class to the way, like, not even the upper class, like, whatever the highest echelon of class is, that's where he was. The 1%. Um, the 1%. Will. I mean, he basically, I mean, he was Cuba's, like, 0.0001%. Like, he was the guy. So he yeah. kind of lost sight of what it was like to be a normal person. So, yeah, he's just like, who needs rights? Like, let's get money. Um, and see, I'm not wanting to generalize the Cuban people, but a common theme that we will see is that every time that someone takes power in Cuba, like that power absolutely corrupts them. And it absolutely. takes them like Batista, like I was talking before, very like pro union workers rights. Once he gets power, he cares more about the power than any of that shit. Well, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I mean, the U.S. has a lot of economic interest in this place, so they don't want equal pay for equal work because if they can get cheaper labor to harvest sugarcane and everything else, like, why wouldn't they? So, right. yeah, I mean, it, it just it adds up. I need my corn pops. <laughs> so in Batista's second presidency, another big problem was organized crime. Which is ironic because when Batista rolled up to the Capitol building in a tank, a lot of people Pause. believed. Keep that in mind. Cuban military leaders being in tanks will become a theme. Continue, Michael. I don't even know what you mean by that, but I'm excited. You're, to you're find gonna out. find out. Yeah, I'm excited. It's gonna um, be a next episode thing, or so probably two episodes from now. Who knows, all right? Many <laughs> we'll Cubans believe that Batista was coming in to break down the barriers. He was going to clean up uh, crime. He's going he's gonna to end the corruption. He's going to drain the swamp. He's going to make Cuba great again. Spicy. Unfortunately, that was not the case. Uh, because what happened was, at this time, Cuba is very very much a haven for the mob like whether that be the italian mob the jewish mob like there's so many mobsters that are taking root here and forming casinos and like brothels whatever it may be if you haven't seen the godfather part two the corleones in havana just watch that scene Godfather movies are, like, my favorite movies ever. All okay, all right. So, anyway, under Batista, casinos, brothels, and the drug trade were all booming industries. Because the other thing, like we've mentioned previously, cocaine is huge right now. So, with support from the Cuban military, the literal mafia, and the United States business, 
Batista was practically unstoppable, like he was on top of the world. So who would be stupid enough to even think about challenging his rule? I think now is a good time for me to rewind history a little bit and talk about a man you may have heard of called Fidel Alejandro Castro. That seems like a good thing to talk about. <laughs> so, Michael, are you ready to get to the main antagonist and or protagonist? Depending I don't even on know how anymore. you see the story. We're, we're definitely going to find out. So, Fidel Alejandro Castro was born the illegitimate child of Angel Castro and Louise Ruz Gonzalez. Angel was a fairly successful businessman and a father of 12 children by the time it was all said and done. Uh, he had five. Yeah, he had five by his first wife, seven by the woman that would end up becoming his second wife. And although their family was somewhat wealthy... Angel made sure his children spent their days among the workers of their farm. That was until age six. Uh, little Fidel was sent to live with a teacher among, a, along with his two sisters. And uh, conditions weren't great. Essentially, you know, where he was sent to live with his teacher. Um, she didn't really have enough money for all of them. So they spent a lot of nights hungry. Just kind of screwed up. Kind of a dark upbringing um but regardless uh they lived through it for two years and fidel was baptized at age eight uh this baptism even though fidel would go on to become a pretty famous atheist this uh, baptism allowed him to be sent to a catholic boarding school now Castro moved around a few different Catholic boarding schools due to behavior problems, a lot of fights and things like that. So not really things I'm going to say are specifically bad for Fidel, especially as a child. Like a lot of kids get in fights. I got in a lot of fights when I was in school. That's not really a big deal. Um, however, Came later in his... Guy. I'm not a big tough guy and I still got in fights. I'm not saying I ever got my ass handed to me. I definitely did. I got my ass kicked in high school one time. Hey, what he matters sure is you stood up. Um, I'm a pacifist now. So, uh, however, later in schooling, Castro became much more focused. And a lot of this was because he was very focused on sports, which was he, which he was focused on sports, which he was very good at. And do you know his sport of choice, Cayman? No, I do not. Do you? Basketball. Really? And, fun fact, I uh, I did some research. Guess what his basketball shoe of choice was? Oh, God. Converse. What was it? The Converse All-Star. Yeah. Okay, so, I can respect that. For Nike, some reason. When are we going to get our Fidel Castro special edition Converses? God, every time I see Nikes, I get so fucking heated. Oh, I should have never researched that topic. It's just an upsetting one. Um, <laughs> regardless, even though he was a big sports guy, he was still very interested in history and debate and philosophy. Um, but however, he didn't have good grades in these subjects, even though he excelled in them, um, because sports were taking up a lot of his homework time, time when he should be writing papers and all that sort of stuff. 
Um, but it was enough that in 1945, Castro enrolled at the University of Havana, and he was there to study law. Here, Castro became very involved in political activism. Um, there was a lot, like we've mentioned before, with protest and anti-gang, gang violence and gang violence and, um, you know, just, just all sorts of fuddlement going on at the University of Havana. Uh, Fidel became very anti-imperialist and came to see the U.S. intervention in the Caribbean Sea as the cause of corruption in Cuba. Uh, he was also very involved in something called the FEU, which we've talked about before, uh, and he even ran to be their president, but lost, uh, which, you know, kind of turns out that maybe Fidel wasn't very good at democratic elections, or at least didn't have good luck with them. Now, Fidel was a fantastic speaker, and in November 1946, he delivered a speech opposing the Roman Graal administration, uh, which we talked about there for a minute. This is the yeah. 100 Days administration. Exactly. Or no, so, no, no, no. This was when he was already president, wasn't it? He'd become president at this time. So he right. was opposing the Roman Graal administration. He's opposing the Roman Graal administration, but... He's also, as we're going to come to find out, going to oppose the Batista administration, which the Grau administration, the Batista administration are like enemies. And then he comes in and he's just like, yeah, I hate both of you also. Like, it's just creating a well, triangle. See, this this you goes think back. He would side with one of them. <sighs> no, because this goes back to that original thing that we were talking about is that that we were talking about is that. Batista did a pretty good job in the beginning. You know, when he was controlling all those puppet presidents, he was getting shit done that Cubans actually liked. He might have been playing in the pockets of the Americans, but he was still getting Cuba a better position at the bargaining table. Right. Um, so Castro, was he initially anti-Batista? Well, we're going to come to find out because I'm going to talk way more about that. They actually had interactions. We will get there. For now, he doesn't really like President Roman Grau. Um, so the speech that he gave earned him national attention. He got in, you know, Cuban national papers. And it also got him contacts in the Popular Socialist Party, uh, which I will refer to from now on as the PSP. Uh, the Socialist Revolutionary Movement, which I'll now refer to as the MSR. And the Wouldn't Insurrectional Revolution. The movement of Socialist Revolutionaries. Oh, you know, these are all translations from Spanish. So I actually don't think that the MSR comes back up, but it's important to remember who they are. They were pretty decently sized player, but there's only so much history we can cover. And also it gained him the attention of the Insurrectional Revolutionary Union, which is the UIR. Wouldn't that be the Union now, of Insurrectional Revolutionaries? Yeah, God damn it, Michael. Yes, it would be, but these are all translations. So, in 1947, uh, being courted by everyone, like the pretty girl for the prom that was single, um, Castro actually said, screw you to all those parties. Instead, he joined the party of the Cuban people, which was called Partido Orthodoxo. Uh, now, this was a socialist group in a lot of ways, but once again, this is going back to don't compare it to socialism now. Um, socialism is something that I would say definitely grows over time, whether it be for the good or the bad. Um, 
But this was a much more moderate socialism than what we'd consider now. Now it'd be more of just democratic and even in some ways Republican. Um, with unrest growing centrally at the University of Havana, President Grau began employing gang members as police and having them patrol campus. Uh, coincidentally, Castro shortly after received a death threat urging him to leave the university. Now, if you can't tell, that coincidentally is um, sarcasm. Uh, we can all pretty much see what happened here. You speak out against the Grau administration. The Grau administration has gang members dressed as police to crack down on you. Um, but Fidel said, fuck you. He stayed in response, all of him and his friends started packing heat. By that, I mean they started carrying arms everywhere that they went, uh, which is enough at the Grau administration to consider you a gang, um, which is a lot of how this gang stuff works. In 1947, Fidel at the university uh, did finally agree to leave, leave Cuba, leave Cuba, uh, but this was only to join an expedition of 1,200 ex-Dominicans and Cubans to go to the Dominican Republic with the hopes of overthrowing U.S.-backed Rafael Trujillo. Um, now, Trujillo, Trujillo, however you pronounce it, he was an awful dictator. Uh, he carried out a lot of assassinations, secret police. Um, if you really need to learn how bad of a man he is, you can just look up the Parsley Massacre. Uh, he was a lot of times known as El Jefe. Just, I can't disagree with Castro here. Uh, El Jefe was a bad dude. Now, this expedition was thwarted when Grau's government stepped in to arrest the expedition. Um, Fidel eventually escaped by jumping off a naval boat and swimming to shore, which is pretty impressive. And he returned to the university where he participated in a protest. Um, police cracked down on this protest, calling the protesters communist, and Castro was badly beaten. Now, I think it's pretty fair to say that Castro was not really a communist at this time. Uh, Castro's biggest thing at this time was, I want a just legal system and pro-democracy. And that was really Castro's thing for a long time. But as we've already talked about, in Cuba, power corrupts. So don't have any of your preconceived notions about Castro now. We all know what he went on to become. But this time, he's really doing a lot of pro-democracy protest. But Cuba had picked up a strategy from the U.S. When you don't agree with someone, you call him a communist. Unfortunately, after this protest, this is really where... Castro began to learn about the communism that he was being accused of. Uh, but we'll set that on the back burner for now. So in 1948, Castro traveled to Colombia and accidentally got involved in a riot in which he assisted in stealing guns from a police station. Now, this is really accidentally. It seems like he wasn't here for the riot at all. Um, but all over South America at this time, there was a lot of unrest, and he was there when a riot happened to break out. There was some protest. He became involved in them. There was a police station that got overran, and he was there picking up the guns from the police station along with everyone else. Um, now, eventually, this protest was shut down, and Fidel was let off from any responsibility of the deaths caused by the guns that these um, people were using. 
uh, as no evidence was found that he was involved in the actual killing aspect. So essentially, he'd stole the guns, but no one could prove that he actually used them. So, okay, hold on. So this is like the third thing that Castro has literally left Cuba to go be a part of. And uh, this is technically the second. This okay, is the second. second. Whatever. Okay, it's the second thing. And then, like, there's also all the, the riots within Cuba. At what point does Castro actually go to school at this university instead of just, like, being now, part of here's these the clubs thing. that go, like, cause civil unrest? We, we are grazing over quite a bit of history. So he is going to school at some point in these amount of times and really like there's more things that i could talk about like the expedition to the dominicans that got shut down um a lot of that was you know he got involved like a week before it happened he went to go and really it was the american government that pressured president Grau to shut that down um and then once it was shut down you know like i said fidel swam back shore um, so that wasn't, you know, that doesn't take up too much of your time. The time that he was in Colombia was just supposed to be like a short vacation. So he was just there for a little bit. And then he happened to be there when a riot broke out and took part in it. Um, really, that was also anti-U.S. government because Colombia was protesting a, gov- a governor. And I'll say governor, it was really a president, which was really a dictator that had been appointed by the U.S. government. Um right. And so, you know, I'm an American. I love my country. Don't take me wrong. This was a lot of the U.S.'s fault at this time. Uh, Southern America, Central America was at a lot of unrest. Caribbean America um, because of our interventionalism. Um, Now, like I said, Fidel was let off any responsibilities from the deaths. So he wasn't really charged anything in Colombia. He got to come back to Cuba. Uh, and this is the same year that Fidel married Myrta Diaz Ballard, who was a student from a wealthy, prominent family. Now, Myrta's family gave Castro and Myrta $10,000. Now, keep in mind, this is in the 50s. $10,000 to go on a three-month honeymoon in New York. And, and, see, that's not... That's one big considering who Castro becomes. Castro's eventually becomes a very anti bourgeoisie person. Um, but here's the part that I think that's significant about that. Because not only did Murta not only did Murta's family donate ten thousand dollars, but also they had a close family friend who contributed one thousand dollars in celebration of the couple's new union. Do you well, know who Caleb, that was, you're, Michael? You're getting married soon. Have you gotten $10,000 contributed towards your honeymoon? No. And I haven't gotten $1,000. And this is $1,000, like I said, in 50s money from right. anyone. Do you right. want to guess who contributed $1,000? $1,000. That's a lot of money, especially in 1950s money, to the union of uh, Fidel Castro and Murta. Was it Jeffrey Epstein? Nope. It was Batista. Oh. Batista. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Batista was a close friend of uh, Fidel Castro's wife's, Marta's family, if that makes sense. Hmm. Um, and this is kind of where Fidel Castro starts, you know, getting to know Batista. Not on a government level, but on a personal level. 
And this is going to come back up at least one more time. So I will talk about that. They know each other. They are at least aware of each other. They know who each other are. Now, upon returning to Cuba after this honeymoon, uh, the newlywed Castros came back to a new Cuban president. See, Grau had stepped down and his successor, Carlos Prio Sicaras, had won the election based on a platform of quelling gang activity. Uh, now, this didn't pan out for him. Violent interactions between protesters, police, and, gra- and gangs grew, which radicalized the protesters, including Castro. So instead of squashing the gangs, Prio began giving gang members government positions. Obviously, clear-cut corruption here. Now, Castro and Murda gave birth to their first child at this time. His name was Fedelito, which I'm not super good at Espanol, but I will say I'm pretty sure Fedelito, you see this a lot, uh, means little Fidel. Uh, one of Castro's brothers is named Angelito because, you know, his father was named Angel, so little Angel. Um, but Castro, despite, you know, starting his family, didn't settle down. He still remained very involved in activism. So he joined what was called the 30th of September movement, which contained both communist and members of Partido Ortodoxo, which was that group that I was talking about that Fidel joined earlier. This is a time when Castro is getting very exposed to communism and starts seeing Cuba's problem as being less about corruption and U.S. interventionalism and more about being a division of classes, uh, more about being a division in the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Now, at a protest on November 13th, 1949, Castro delivered a speech critical of the Cuban government that exposed various government deals with gang organizations. The newspapers picked up on this. He had a lot of interesting things to say about the government and their involvement with gangs. And a lot of it wasn't really easily disputed. So this is the kind of thing that once printed in the newspapers really paints a large target on Castro's back. Uh, both from the gangs and the government. Um, So Castro actually fled to the U.S. for a few months before returning to Cuba. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily that he was partial to the U.S., but the U.S. was honestly kind of the most stable and lawful place to retreat to at this time. And Cuba's not that far away from us. Um, After a few months, he returned to Cuba. And when he did, he just kind of laid low long enough to finally obtain his doctorate of law from the university in September of 1950. So, you know, he was there for a while. He he was there long enough. Yeah, he went to class in between before all these things, you know, I talk about these events, but it's not like a failed protest really lasts years. A failed protest lasts a day, maybe two. So upon graduation, Castro founded a less than financially successful law firm, which specifically catered to low-income Cubans. And, you know, if you're going to start a law firm, immediately saying my clientele is the incredibly poor, despotate people. Like, that's not going to get you a lot of money, but Castro didn't really care at this point in time. Because I, at this time, it really seems like, and this isn't Castro's account. This is a lot of other people's accounts. 
Um, at this time, it seemed like he really was interested in helping lower income people. So he also, of course, through this became very involved in politics, not that he wasn't involved in politics before. So furious at the recent ban of student organizations by the Prio administration, and this is, of course, student organizations at the University of Havana, uh, Fidel begins a campaign to become elected to the Cuban House of Representatives. And he was endorsed as a candidate by Partido Orthodoxo, which is that group that he's a part of. Now, Castro actually seemed like he was going to win this one, and he even met with second-time presidential candidate Batista. Uh, and Batista promised him a position in his administration if he were to win. Regard, like meaning if Batista was to win the role of president, he would give Fidel a position in his administration. Um, so I think that this definitely shows that they agreed on some points. And they definitely did, at least in Batista's early days. However, this idea was kind of forgotten when Batista seized power, like Michael said, in a military coup three weeks before the election, canceling the general elections and Castro's chance at office. So earlier I said, you know, Castro may not be so good at democratic elections. Well, it was kind of looking like he was going to win this one and it was stolen from him. So, you know, you lose one, the other one, you try your best, it's looking good and the opportunity gets taken. That's definitely going to upset someone. So Batista once in power became further and further right-leaning. And... I'm going to say right-leaning. I'm going to say right-leaning socialist um, because that was kind of Cuba's stick at this time. So it's not really right-leaning as we talk about now. Um, really, when I talk about right and left now, it's more authoritarian and democratic. So right-leaning is he's becoming the more authoritarian leader. Now, Batista made a lot of relations with U.S. elites like he kind of had the entire time. And he abandoned relations with the USSR completely. Now, see, at this point, the U.S. is steeping pretty heavily into a Cold War. And the entire world is honestly steeping into a Cold War. And it's kind of hard to balance, do I want to be with the U.S. or do I want to be with the USSR? Because those were your two only options. Which really, um, you know, first world country, you were aligned with the U.S. Second world country, USSR. Third world, aligned with neither. Not a lot of people with any value escaped being a third world country, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, Cuba started definitely becoming a first world country at this time. And uh, Castro really saw this as a complete abuse of power, which it really was, and tried to bring legal action against the Batista organization multiple times, but it never got him anywhere. Because you have to keep in mind, Castro is a lawyer at this point in time, and he's actually not a bad lawyer. Now, what do you do when the government has been seized by a legal system that isn't working? Obviously, the next step is to form a guerrilla army, of course. Now, be careful, Cayman, because that's some strong advice to give to some people that may identify with the statement you just made. Okay, no one identify with that. I'm a pacifist. No one should ever hurt each other, ever, under any circumstances. It's wrong. Um, do not form a guerrilla army. <laughs> For Protest. Protest all you want. Never hurt anyone. Nonviolent. Nonviolence is the best way. It's or... been proven so many times throughout history. So in 1952, Castro establishes, quote-unquote, the movement. And that's what they were called. And he began training guerrilla fighters to overthrow Batista's regime. 
and by the end of the year, this group had 1,200 members. Castro decided against siding with any sort of far-left or socialist organization wanting to recruit a moderate anti-Batista regime. Like I said, at this point, he's very interested in pro-democracy. He's very interested in just getting the U.S. out of Cuban politics and establishing a justice system, essentially. Uh, that being said, his brother, Raul, who we will talk about more later, uh, was involved with the PSP around this time, the People's Socialist Party. So um, Castro still had that connection. Fidel still had that connection. So on the 25th of July, 1953, Castro, along with 165 revolutionaries, set out to take a weapons depot in Oriente. Oriente is kind of like, you could call it a state in Cuba or a county, uh, more like a state in their view. Uh, This plan was based on how the 19th century Cuban independence fighters had raided the same barracks when they were under Spanish control. Um, And this was all orchestrated by Cuban national hero, Jose Marti. Yeah, and what I love about this plan is they scheduled it around a festival called Carnival. And their plan was, I mean, hey, it's Carnival. Surely a lot of the guards are going to be drunk on the job. So, like, this will be easy. (laughs) Like, that's legitimately part of their plan. (laughs) So, you want to know how this mission went? Well, the mission went awry. Only 13 of the 16 cars actually going on the mission, so transporting all of Castro's, and not I'm not even going to say all of, all of the troops that he planned to take on this mission actually made it. Um, the alarm was raised almost immediately once they you got there. You say made it as if, like, something happened. I'm sure it's only 13 of the 16 actually showed up. The other three were like... We're not doing this. Come on. <laughs> no, the Come other on. three, the other three, essentially their cars broke down and we'll get into that later. Oh, um, but essentially their cars broke down, um, but they were uh, Castro's troops were pinned down under government fire, uh, machine gun fire. Uh, other rebels, which are part of those ones that got lost and also part of what Castro had organized, uh, set out to take a nearby hospital. But they were quickly apprehended by government soldiers who tortured them and executed 22 members without trial. Yikes. Yeah, big yikes. And that's going to come back to bite them in the ass. Now, Castro and his group suffered six fatalities outside of the hospital execution, along with 15 injured. Now, that's Castro's group that's actually taking the compound. Six fatalities, 15 injured. The military at the compound, however, suffered 19 ca- suffered 19 fatalities and 27 injured. So Castro's troops, I mean, if you're looking at it purely based on numbers, did a pretty good job. But if you do uh, it as a per, per capita. Yeah, as a per they capita. Suffered, yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> per capita, the military did better. So the rebels were all quickly apprehended and charged. Uh, Responding to the attack, Batista's government proclaimed martial law and ordered a violent crackdown on dissent and imposed strict media censorship. Now, I think this is a pretty good point where you can say Batista's slipping just a little bit, or at least he starts to. So on the 21st of September, 
122 defendants from Castro's crew went to trial, along with completely uninvolved members of the PSP and Partido Orthodoxo. Now remember, these aren't a part of the movement. Partido Orthodoxo is a group that Castro was a part of, and PSP, the People's Socialist Party, was a group that Raul was a part of. Essentially, the government argued that Castro couldn't have planned the entire attack alone. Now, Castro, who decided to represent himself, he's a pretty good lawyer, by the way, argued that he didn't plan the attack alone. He definitely couldn't have planned the attack alone. He had actually stolen the plan from that same Cuban national hero we talked about before, Jose Marti. Um, So big slap in the face for them. He also argued that he couldn't be guilty of the charge that he was faced with, and that charge being organizing an up, and this is in quotes, organizing an uprising of armed persons against the constitutional powers of the state, end quote, as Batisto had claimed power unconstitutionally. For good measure, Castro then started to embarrass the army by revealing how they had tortured and executed captives without trials which was widely known among the Cuban populace at this point, and it wasn't looking good for them. Uh, Castro was eventually stopped when the court said he was too ill to continue, and I tried to figure out what they meant by this, uh, but it really seems like they were just trying to get him to stop roasting them and like kind of end the trials. So Castro, I'm going to say he did well. Castro did well at this trial. Um, given that 31 of the prisoners were found guilty. So that's only 31 out of that, what, original 122. And even still, most were treated pretty leniently in their sentencing. Castro himself was only given 15 years in prison, and his brother Raul was given 13. Although they were placed at a relatively comfortable prison. Like, it was a relatively new compound. It was considered kind of a cushy prison compared to the others. Castro was imprisoned with about 25 of his comrades at this point, in which he restarted referring to them as the 26th of July movement. Now, remember the 26th of July movement. Also going to be very important, not in this episode, but in the next one. So while in prison, Castro also did a lot of reading. He mostly read a lot of Marx and Lenin, which if you don't know, kind of the guys who laid the groundwork for communism. Um, But he also read quite a bit of Shakespeare and Freud. He also started a school for the fellow prisoners, trying to increase their literacy and generally make them more educated. Finally, he got divorced. um, And this was kind of after he found out that his wife had gotten a job at the Ministry of the Interior. Now, of course, this is the Ministry of the Interior under Batisto, former, if not current, family friend. Um, A cat... Castro wasn't really about this. Um, The thing that upset him most was that in the divorce, um, Marta got the custody of Fidelito, who was his son. And I mean, that makes sense considering that Fidel was in prison, but regardless, he didn't want him to grow up in the elite of Cuba. He wanted him to still remain down to earth. Right, and he expected him to be, you know, sent to the prison every other weekend to be, uh, <laughs> to be radicalized by him and his uh, terrorist buddies. I mean, best case scenario, that's probably what Fidel wanted. But yeah, regardless, in 1954, uh, 
presidential elections were held. As Michael said, Batista ran unopposed. And um, he started to believe that Castro was no longer a threat to him. So Batista commuted the sentence of Castro and the entire 26th of July movement on May 15th, 1955. And really, I think that's where we're just going to have to end it today. Uh, that's a good stopping point. Yeah, for what's this coming has already up become a long episode, and I think that's a good ending point. So because it's the perfect I really wish you hadn't because I I mean I feel like everyone listening to this episode knows that Castro is not going to end here. Castro goes on to do oh, some pretty yeah. significant things. So the fact that Batista lets him out of prison just because he feels like he's unstoppable is kind of the I really wish you hadn't cuz like that's that's where we're going to oh, pick up. Oh yeah, but next let's time, also but let's let's also not fool ourselves. And we're going to get into this later. Batista was not a good guy at this point. No. The fact that Batista was overthrown is not a bad thing. But we've already started to see a pattern how Cuban government goes. Mm-hmm. You you overthrow the government, you take over, you hold power for a little while. Like I said, I don't want to say too much right now, but we all know Castro takes power and he holds onto it for a long time. He was yeah. kind of just better at it than everyone else. Well, and even um, even before, like we saw where, yeah, you let the your your political rivals out and then they immediately start to, like, undermine your power. So, like, I mean, not that yeah. it's a good thing that these people were in power, but, like, if you throw them in prison for undermining you and then you let them out, nothing's going to change. Like, you just gave them a second chance. So, I don't know. And yeah, I I do want to say, this isn't really an I really wish you had an episode. This is is an I really wish you had series. So don't don't take it as this. This is not an end all be all. Yeah, we're going to be back with a whole lot more. There's a we're lot of building. figures in here that we really yeah. wish they hadn't. Like there's there's a yeah. lot of points that's like I mean there's so many different things here that you could point to and say like this was a mistake. This was a mistake. This was a mistake. But like they all build together to just make this pile of like mistakes and like oh it's just I mean look at look at the names that we haven't even mentioned yet. Che Guevara, uh, John Kennedy, uh, Kerchev. Like, we still have a lot to get to. Mm-hmm. A lot to get to. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, and I think that this is just the best point to end it today. Castro's out of prison. He was in prison. Um, this was, far, this was literally the, the introduction. Story. This was the, this, consider yeah. this the preamble to the actual series. Because, like, this was all the facts you needed to know to get into the real meat of it. Right. This so, is the, all the stuff before we could even start talking about Bay of Pigs, before we could even start talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Like, it, it's 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 a lot. It's, it's a, a lot. lot. And I am happy. I feel like, you know, this is going to be a long one. And by the time that we're done, you're probably going to be like, I don't want to hear anything more about the Cuban, you know, relationship with the U.S., the Cuban Revolution. Um, but we're going to try and do this story justice, which is why mm-hmm. we have, we're, we're, why we're going to have so many episodes. Yep. Again. It and was, that being it was... said, that being said, I think no, no after notes this time. I don't want to bring anything up now. I have we'll one. Have an, oh, I have one. One after note. I have okay. One you sure you don't note. want to bring it up at the very end, our no. final episode? No, I feel like it belongs in this episode because it's, uh, okay. it's really it on fact. Okay. Bring um, it up now. Cuba almost became a state, 
Um, it's kind of a crazy story, and I'm not going to get into the details of it. But basically, Franklin Pierce, who I'm sure most of you don't even recognize as the name of an American <laughs> president, but he was, I promise. Yeah, he was. Um, he was a huge fan of slavery. He was a big, big fan. And he asked his secretary of state to look into buying Cuba because Cuba at the time had slaves and it would add another slave state to America, making uh, a lot of votes a lot easier. Um, so this resulted in something called the Ostend Manifesto, which basically said, we're going to offer to buy Cuba from Spain. And if they say no, we're just going to take it. Um <laughs> But when this came out, a lot of the northern states were like, hey, no, we're no. How about no? Um, and it created a lot of dissent within the government of America. And it's even categorized as one of the many events that led to the Civil War. So, yeah. And this was 40 years before the Spanish-American War. It's one of the things I wanted to cover. Um but, but yeah, we but cut. we couldn't because go we, back that far. Exactly, we had to, we had to cut it somewhere. So I still wanted to cover it here, just as like a quick thing. But um, and I, I imagine if that happened, we would have a similar situation with what happened with Texas, which is really the same thing. Yeah, and uh, you know, I don't want to get into it right now, but if, we don't have time. We don't have time. I love my country. Texas is a big old screwed up story that you can read about. Maybe or we'll, we'll do about. an episode about Maybe. the future. Who knows? Texas Maybe. episode. In the remember future. the Alamo. Uh, remember how we stole a bunch of land from Mexicans, displaced them, and now won't let them come back. Kinda, hey, Kevin, said... you want to tell the people they can find us? No, no, no. I have an after note. Okay, okay Colin, Colin has an after note. Oh, this is exciting. Uh, if you go back and listen to episodes one, two, four, five, or seven, I know where this is. You going. will notice that the outro music has changed. Uh, the only reason I'm bringing it up is because I spent the last couple hours editing music and replacing it with our beloved attack story. Oh, you are a beautiful man. Oh, beautiful and attack home. story. And home. Oh, that's right. And Episode home. seven also includes home, which we have and not used home. yet. And home let us use his music. Yes, home is awesome. So, yeah, yeah. Yes. Check out home. Check out attack story. We we can't we can't overstate how much we rely on those guys for these episodes. And you yeah. know it, it's important to have the intro and the outro. And check out yes. go back and check out those podcasts. Go, regardless, regardless, this is already a long episode, so it, it won't hurt us to stretch it out a little bit further. Yeah. A lot of the music that you've been hearing up to this point is attack story. Most of and it is. Yeah. There is home now. Check out home. Yes. Really go check out a tax story. Absolutely. We don't have any sponsors for this episode. The one person that's really, I would say, sponsoring us, helping us out is a tax story tax because story. he's letting us use his incredible music. Go check him out. He's so good. He's on SoundCloud. Make it happen. Oh, yeah. He's on SoundCloud. Anyway. But yeah, let's wrap it up. So follow us on Instagram at I really wish you hadn't. Follow us on Twitter at IRWYH podcast. You have any comments, questions? You have some weird things to say about how much we've kind of been defending a communist revolutionary up to this point? Go ahead and shoot us an email at podcast at I really wish you hadn't.com. Also, you want to tell us America's never done anything wrong and we're completely wrong in all of our opinions here? 
also shoot us an email at podcast at I really wish you hadn't dot com. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's going to be a tough argument for you, buddy. I love America. Best um, of luck. I mean, look, send us the email. <laughs> I, we'll address it and we'll tell you you're wrong. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, every country, all countries have done every, bad. Every all countries. Sucks. If you don't protest your country, then you don't have true patriotism. Truth. Everything needs to constantly get better. Constantly Let, get better. Very political. Constantly. Let's let's get let's get to the part where we play the music. I really wish you hadn't. Is hosted by me, Michael Bentley, and Kevin McMahon. We are produced by Colin Moore. Intro and outro music by Tax Story. Our cover art is by Nickator. Please remember to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, don't let your political rivals out of prison. Just keep them in there. It's fine. And as always, <laughs> don't do anything I wouldn't do.